0: Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, Zell Anderson, Licensed Professional Counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Uh, So today I'm going to be talking about chapter five of the book, which is titled Slavery's Children. To start off with, I wanted to comment on Dr. DeGray's coverage of the concept of colorism. I know uh, I've talked about this in previous episodes, and I'll be sure to link an article that I've written on colorism in the show notes. Colorism is basically racism within a race. So in the context that I'm about to discuss, Colorism is assigning different values to people based on their tone of skin as it pertains to African Americans. And it stems from indoctrination of white supremacy. So here's a quote. Let's take an example. The pursuit of the white ideal of beauty. When owners had children by their black mistresses, the owners would allow these offspring to work and sometimes live in their homes. Naturally, these slaves usually had lighter skin and straighter hair, and the lighter and straighter the better, from the owner's point of view. Light skin and straight hair rapidly became associated with an improved quality of life. During slavery, thick, wavy hair was referred to as good hair, and kinky hair was relegated to being bad hair. Thus began the socialization of blacks to believe that dark skin and kinky hair were attributes to be loathed. In the mid-1800s, a black woman named Sarah Breedlove, better known as Madame C.J. Walker, became the first self-made female American millionaire after marketing hair growth products and a French-made metal comb that straightened hair. This concept of good and bad hair still persists, and males as well as females continue to go to great lengths to cosmetically produce the idealized standard of white beauty employing everything from hair straightening products to skin bleaching creams and continuing on with that in the next chapter quote for centuries we in america have had a preoccupation with skin color as exemplified by the proliferation of skincare products designed to lighten the skin and the swelling numbers of black people availing themselves of these products lingering just beneath our consciousness is the brainwashing from generations ago that whispers still of the noxious socialization that the color of our skin needs changing and that such color defines us and somehow determines our future success or failure end quote. What Dr. DeGry is getting at here is that through hundreds of years of oppression and devaluing of black people, and then you got to remember lighter skin tones for black people were the result of rape by white slave owners, self-concept uh, began to warp. Um, because not only are black people being treated as property and less than than their white owner. There's favoritism given to those who have lighter skin tones. And as discussed um, in previous episodes, um, in these times, the darker tone skin people would be delegated to do uh, more agricultural tasks, whereas the lighter skin uh, would do lighter domestic duties. And I want to share a story that Dr. DeGraff gives in this section of the book. Quote, I remember Justin, a friend from high school who was just two years older than me and had graduated in my brother's class. He was the oldest child of an interracial marriage between his white mother and black father. Justin was tall for his age and sported a completely blonde afro. He remained completely deprived of any of the rich melanin from his dark chocolate father except for his deep brown eyes. He was a striking young man with his chiseled African facial features and near platinum blonde fro. Justin worshiped his father in spite of the fact that his father clearly despised him. Most of us kids had heard him refer to Justin as a freak. He simply couldn't believe Justin was really his son, although there was no denying that Justin was Mr. Walker's son. One Saturday night at a blue light party in South Central Los Angeles, I was dancing when I glanced over and saw Justin standing in the center of the room surrounded by a group of desperate and angry young black boys from the neighborhood. I remember seeing them hitting Justin, mostly in the face, the face they resented and loathed. A face that confused them about who and what they were, and more importantly, about who and what Justin was. I screamed to Justin to fight them back, but Justin simply smiled at me and never raised his hands to strike out or even to defend himself. It was as if Justin welcomed the blows as punishment for the ambiguity of his appearance and his life. Before long, Justin was curled up in a fetal position on the floor, beaten unrecognizably. I was confused and afraid for Justin and for me and everyone else in my troubled little world. I wondered why Justin's father didn't love him, and I wondered if Mr. Walker's dad had loved him, or if the extreme muscularity Mr. Walker had adopted was a defense against those who despised his black skin. Ten years later, I would learn that Justin hung himself with a belt in his girlfriend's apartment. While I never knew why Justin chose to end his life, I believe his having grown up torn between racial worlds and never quite fitting in added to his already deeply rooted despair. Sweet and gentle Justin was unable to find a place on any team or in any family, and he paid the highest price that anyone should ever have to pay for being different. End quote. Reading that story through for the second time, resonates deeply with me being a biracial black person. If I look back on my upbringing there were lots of lots of examples of confusion among my peers about what I was or um, what I was mixed with or um, things like that and the the thing that always struck me about these sort of encounters was that we don't choose, What we're born as. I have a daughter who is mixed because I am half African, half Caucasian, and my wife is Caucasian, so my daughter is one fourth Black. And I, as I look back on the first, I would say, year of her life, I kind of struggled with the fact that she doesn't present with any melanin. She has my face. She has my features, but she doesn't have any brown presentation in her skin. And I would get comments from people in various settings. So I've been told, that's not your daughter. I've been on Walks before where passersby will be like, Oh, it looks like you're babysitting today. I got to a point where I had to accept that she is who she is, and I love her 100%. And that the color of her skin is not as important as I've been conditioned to think that it is. And by placing so much emphasis on that, is fueling that ongoing disparity between skin tones. So in having a child, the fear would be that as she grows up and becomes a citizen of this world, it's not outwardly apparent of the identity of her father. And I guess that stirred up the the fear of somehow being erased or um, disregarded. But again, all of that's based in conditioning and stuff that is beyond the situation. Like I'm very involved in her life. Uh, I work from home. So I've literally gotten to watch her grow and develop during this pandemic. And I'm going to be part of her personality and everything beyond just physical appearance. So the reason I share that is because in parallel to the story that I shared from the book about Justin, his father resented his son who presented, just like my daughter, uh, very fair-skinned. I don't know, this This story just deeply resonated with me because I I know firsthand what it's like to be in that spot where you have a child that skin color doesn't match up and it, it feeds into a lot of, I guess, insecurities and fears of erasure. So I just thought I would share that. Hopefully that made sense. So later on in the chapter, uh, Dr. DeGrasse shares about a uh, young woman that she mentored. And uh, I'm going to provide a quote here. She shared that her friends teased her about being A goody-good and accused her of trying to act white. It was disturbing to me when I first heard that black youth experience peer pressure from one another not to achieve, and that getting good grades was equated with acting white. Now, unfortunately, such peer pressure has become commonplace." And then the young lady went on to say, they won't let me grow here whenever I reach for anything, they begin to resent me and pull me down. And then Dr. DeGray kind of concludes the section by saying, unfortunately, there are numerous black youth who continue to believe that they are destined to fail, that success is reserved for those other than themselves, and that they lack what it, it takes to make it in life. Being told you are inferior for hundreds of years can have lasting psychic impacts which are passed from parent to child, to grandchild to great-grandchild, end quote. And I want to comment on this from my vantage point and my experience of growing up. There were times that I went to schools that were primarily white. There were times that I went to schools that were primarily black, whether it be based on how I talked or how much I applied myself. When I would strive to be on the honor roll in the primarily black schools that I went to, it was a, uh, I was teased, Uh, I was called an Oreo, which means I'm brown on the outside and white on the inside, which again goes to the impact of colorism, which I never knew what it was growing up, but as I learn more about it as an adult, I'm able to reflect and gain awareness on those things. So that's yet another example of how whiteness is the standard of any form of excellence based on culture and society as we know it. It goes back to the the rules of slaves, right? It was illegal to teach a slave to read or write. Why is that? Well, if a person is able to gain intelligence and um, access to information that comes from being able to read and write, the facade that there is a hierarchy or a superiority of white people over others begins to fall. So it was a threat to white supremacy. And so it was avoided at all cost. And so going back to the previous story about Justin, I can definitely relate with his sense of not feeling like he belonged in predominantly white settings or predominantly black settings because of the being a hybrid between the two. Um, So I just wanted to kind of reflect on how it goes beyond just a physical appearance thing. It, it can be intellectual, it can be um, emotional. And so I'm going to conclude this section with the last paragraph of um, chapter five. Whether or not we have overcome, most of us have been impacted by post-traumatic slave syndrome in one way or another. Actually, Many white people have been also, but that's a topic for another book. Understanding the role our past plays in our present attitudes, outlooks, mindsets, and circumstances is important if we are to free ourselves from the spiritual, mental, and emotional shackles that bind us today. Shackles that limit what we believe we can be, do, and have understanding the part post-traumatic slave syndrome plays in our evolution may be the key that helps to set us on a path to well-being." End quote. I've spent a lot of time talking about what is post-traumatic slave syndrome? What are the impacts? How has it played out in history up until the present? How has it impacted me personally? And so this final part is healing, what can be done with all of this information that's been gleaned by the reader or um, by someone who's continuing to investigate why the world is the way that it is. And I haven't read it at the time of this recording yet, this final chapter, but I'm excited to see um, the conclusion to this very complex concept. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.